evidence and answers. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat is interviewing leading apologetics scholar, Dr. Ron Rhodes. Ron has been a guest on Evidence and Answers many times, and you can find multiple interviews and teachings right there on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Today's topic is a popular one, the poverty of the prosperity gospel. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. Here's our host, Dr. Pat Zucarin and Dr. Ron Rhodes with part two. And yet, Pat, they were the poorest church in existence. They were the poorest church, even though they were the most godly church. And that's one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul had to go visit various other churches in order to raise money for the Jerusalem church. Now, how would a word faith teacher explain that one? Well, they don't. Yeah, you know, and it seems, you know, contrary to Christ who said, you know, whoever wants to follow me must take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever loves his life in this world shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Peter talks about, you know, those who want to live godly lives shall suffer persecution. It seems like suffering, you know, James talks about consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of all kinds. seems like that message as far as, you know, persecution and suffering, living in a fallen world seems to be absent in those who preach the prosperity gospel. Well, I think you're right. And what's interesting is how often these guys that teach the prosperity gospel they point to Jesus as our example. Now, I find it very odd that they do that, but I mean, if you can show that Jesus is on your side, then surely you've misinterpreted all those verses you just read, Pat. If Jesus teaches the prosperity gospel, then, I mean, that settles the issue. And it really kind of is amazing what some of these guys are saying about Jesus. For example, uh, there's one word faith teacher who talks about how um, this idea that Jesus and the disciples were poor is ridiculous. Uh, and I'm quoting here, the Bible says that he has left us an example that we should follow his steps, and that's the reason why I drive a Rolls Royce. I'm following in Jesus' steps. And then there's another one that talked about how Jesus wore designer clothes. You know, he didn't wear stuff off the rack, but he wore designer clothes and therefore was a very rich man. Now let me ask you, Pat, do you think Jesus was a rich man in the sense just described? No, I think he said, you know, that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You know, foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Doesn't sound well, that's, like, a, yeah. that's exactly right. And he grew up, you know, under a carpenter. His daddy was a carpenter, and he became a carpenter. And the carpenters, they weren't rich. You know, they were the workmen of the day. They had to go out there and earn their money. And you're right, he did say that he had nowhere to lay his head. That's in Matthew 8.20. Uh, he had to perform a miracle in order to pay the uh, the two drachma temple tax in Matthew 17. And at his death, the Roman soldiers cast lots for his clothing, which is the only thing he owned. Luke 23, verse 34. He had no big estate to leave behind to care for his mother, but rather he had to ask John the disciple to care for his mother. So, I mean, it's very clear that Jesus grew up in, in poverty, but he was spiritually rich. And see, this is where the word faith teachers get so off base, because that's our true richness as Christians. Very often when the Bible talks about you and I as Christians being rich and being blessed and, uh, you know, being healed, 
It has to do with spiritual healing and spiritual wealth and spiritual richness. And, of course, that's one of the reasons why Jesus told us not to build up our treasures on earth, but rather to build up our treasures in heaven. So, yes, Jesus did talk about wealth and being rich, but it was always spiritual wealth and spiritual richness that he focused on, even in the midst of being poor personally. And so uh, it's, it's those kind of facts that I think people need to be aware of. And if people would recognize this, it would help dispel all the guilt and shame and anxiety of so many people around the world who feel like they must not be living right because they're not wealthy and they're not healthy. Yes. Well, Ron, uh, give us a brief history of how this movement developed. Well, you know, that's an interesting question because there have been some uh, articles and books that I have read who have tried to argue that this was just an offshoot of the uh, the charismatic movement. And I don't think that that's true. I mean, there's a lot of charismatics that don't believe in the word faith movement. And in fact, some of the strongest critics of the word faith movement have been, you know, charismatic leaders. And so I don't think it's a fair statement to say that. There are others who say that this movement grew exclusively out of the faith healing movement of the 19th century. And I think that that faith healing or the faith cure movement of the 19th century might have contributed to it, but it goes a lot deeper into what I believe is the metaphysical movement. And I know, Pat, that you've heard of this. This is one of those scary words that people hear, and they're not sure what it means, and it sounds like maybe they don't want to know what it means. You know, metaphysical, that's a big word. (laughs) Yes. But let me just explain what I mean by that. There was a guy by the name of Phineas P. Quimby who lived back in the 1800s, and he came up with certain ideas about healing people. And he taught that the source of physical healing, whether it was a healing of uh, cancer or a healing of broken bones or you know kidney, kidney disease or whatever kind of disease that you have, the source of physical healing lies in the mind. And he was convinced that all physical diseases were caused by thinking wrong thoughts. And so if you can come to a point where you eliminate false beliefs and you stop thinking bad thoughts, then your disease is going to clear up and you're going to get healthy again. Now, Quimby actually didn't start a movement himself, Pat. You know, he didn't start a church and he did not start a movement, but there was a movement that independently grew out of the writings of Phineas P. Quimby. And we call it the New Thought Movement. Now, this is where it starts to get really interesting in terms of the word faith movement. The New Thought Movement basically says that people can create their own reality through the power of positive affirmation. If you think about positive thoughts, you'll bring about positive circumstances. In contrast, if you think negative thoughts, then you'll bring about bad circumstances. And so, as it came about, the New Thought Movement came up with this law that they call the Law of Attraction. Now, Pat, you've heard of this law, haven't you? Yes, there have been some recent very popular books that come out on that. I think well, the, the book The Secret was one of them. Well, that's exactly right, and a lot of people thought that that book, The Secret, was setting forth a new idea, like some kind of a new discovery had been made, when in fact this has been around for a very long time. And this law of attraction basically says that like attracts like, and that means that positive thoughts attract positive circumstances, negative thoughts bring about dismal circumstances. Now, here's the thing. Quimby became very popular in this, and and the New Thought movement was really pervasive back during that time, and so in the later 1800s, there's another guy that came on the scene 
by the name of E.W. Kenyon. And he's basically the grandfather of the word faith movement. Late 1800s, early 1900s, this guy comes on the scene and basically teaches that God created the universe by speaking words of faith and that you and I today can do the same thing. And as well, he taught that by positive confession, we can have health and wealth in our lives. Now, you can see how those ideas became uh, very popular in the, new, in the, uh, the word faith movement, but there's something else that's very critical, and that has to do with the issue of trichotomy, the trichotomous view of man. Now, I'm sure that you know what that means. This is another one of those big words, big theological words that a lot of people are unfamiliar with. But, Pat, you know that it means that man is made up of three things, body, soul, and spirit, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So, basically, what these guys taught, what Kenyon taught in particular, is that the spirit was what's in touch with God, and that's the most important thing. And that the spirit is supposed to rule over the body through the instrument of the soul, and the soul is the seat of reason. And so the spirit, which is in touch with God, has authority over reason as well as over the body itself. And for that reason, you know, if you have physical symptoms in your body, you're not supposed to pay attention to that. After all, if your spirit is naming it and claiming it and saying that you're healed, that's what you listen to. And if the reason part of your soul tries to give you good reasons why you're sick, you're to ignore that. You should focus only on the spirit, and the spirit is the only thing that's in touch with God, and by your spirit, you can proclaim a healing. And so this was a very distorted view of you know, the, the nature of man, but it became pretty popular. And after that, the rest of the history is pretty, very, you know, it's pretty clear. Kenneth Hagin drew a lot from Kenyon. In fact, he plagiarized from Kenyon. And if Kenyon was the grandfather of the movement, Kenneth Hagin was the father of the movement. And he basically taught the exact same ideas that positive thoughts bring about positive circumstances and negative thoughts bring about negative circumstances. Now, that seems pretty dangerous, ignoring reason. That seems to be contrary to what the Scripture teaches about loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think in Isaiah where God says, come, let's reason together. Ignoring reason is a very dangerous thing for the Christian. Well, that's right. It's kind of interesting, Pat, that word faith teachers cannot argue against reason without actually employing reason. You see, they give reasons why you shouldn't pay attention to reason. <laughs> now, whenever somebody does that kind of thing, I smell a rat. <laughs> yeah, self-contradicting. You know, they're self-contradicting, that's right. And you know, when you look at the New Testament, we see that the Apostle Paul reasoned from the Scriptures. We see that Jesus would often confound his critics with logic. Peter talked about being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you. We are also told to be able to refute those who contradict the Scriptures, Titus 1.9. And so, you know, very clearly, reason is a gift from God, and God expects us to use it. And so that very much goes against this word-faith idea that the Spirit reigns over reason, and that we're to ignore reason if there's a contradiction between the Spirit and the soul. Well, Ron, from the brief history you described here, it seems like the movement kind of arises out of the United States. Is that right? Well, a lot of it has. A lot of what's happened is that there are certain teachers that have become very popular, people like Frederick Price and Charles Capps, Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, you know, and others. There's others uh, that have become popular as well. I'm thinking of Joel Osteen, for example. 
And a lot of these guys are featured on television shows that go out globally. And so as a result of that, you know, we're kind of exporting heresy. And as I said, you know, to be fair, there are varying degrees of orthodoxy and heresy within individual word faith churches. Some lean more towards the orthodox view, but some are others are on the other side of the spectrum that are much more cultic. And then you've got a bunch of them that are kind of in the middle somewhere. But these various leaders, you know, exporting these doctrines worldwide. And like I said earlier in the broadcast, a lot of the people who watch these shows are very gullible. They're well-meaning. They want to do the right thing. They want to understand God's word. And they think that what's being communicated by these leaders is, in fact, an accurate representation of the Bible. You know, that's why I wish we had a lot more shows going out internationally. And I have, I have done a number of international shows, but I tell you what, we just need so much more. Yes. You know, Ron, let's, let's go over some of the biblical passages that the health, wealth, prosperity preachers love to quote. And I think you've touched on some of them, but let's go over some of them. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that, you know, especially verse 3 where, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So God, through the power of his spoken words, created the universe, and through the power of our words then, like God, we have the power to create our own reality. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, like God, like creature. (laughs) It's amazing that they teach this. They look at what God did. God did speak the world into existence. He spoke the universe into existence. And they also will teach that God released his faith when he spoke, so that God himself has faith. So each time God spoke, he was exercising his faith as he brought the universe into existence. But, you know, just think about that for a minute, Pat. Think about the implications that are there. To me, this really does away and undermines the doctrine of God's sovereignty. You see, God gets what he wants because he is God not because he speaks words of faith. You see, the reason why the universe leapt into existence when God spoke is because God is God. God is the all-powerful creator of the universe, and you and I are not him. You know, when I look at certain verses in the Bible, like Isaiah 46:10, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And then Isaiah 14, verse 24, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. What we are witnessing is a sovereign deity. And man, by contrast, is a finite creature. And I told you earlier that I always cringe when I see finite creatures setting themselves up as God. But one of the things I always like to point people to is the biblical account of uh, Moses talking to the Pharaoh. You remember the account, uh, Pat. Yes. You know, I think about how Pharaoh was considered God. He was the son of Ra, the sun god. So Pharaoh was considered God. And you know what he said to Moses? He said, Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him and obey his voice? And then, uh, you know, Moses, through the power of God, inflicted ten tremendous miracles that were judgments against Egypt And every time God inflicted one of these judgments, God said that you may know that I am Yahweh and that there is no one like me in all the earth. Pat, what happened is that Pharaoh asked the question, and then Yahweh answered. And he was proving the puniness not only of Pharaoh as a god, but all of the other gods of Egypt were absolutely impotent. 
And that's one of the greatest biblical stories out there for showing that man is not God. Of course, I always think about Herod in the New Testament, too. Somebody when who was listening to Herod speak said, this man speaks with the voice of a god. And, of course, Herod did not deny it. You know, he was just kind of exulting in it and kind of waving his hands like he was deity right there on the earth. And, of course, as the biblical text indicates, he was executed by an angel and worms ate his body. You see, the point is, Pat, is that God does not like pretenders to the divine throne. There is no one like God, and God expects you and me as creatures to respond in humility. And one of the best places to find that is in the Psalms. Psalm 100, verse 3 is one of my favorites. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. I tell you what, Pat, it's all about God. It's not about puny human beings. Yes, and God being sovereign is not subject to any law, law of faith or whatever it may be, because he, as you stated, he is ruler and creator over all. That's exactly right. And so this idea of us being like God by having faith and speaking faith words is nonsense. Like I said, God gets what he wants because he is God. When God speaks a word that brings something into being, whether it's a miracle or whether God was creating the universe, the only reason why the universe leapt into being or a miracle comes about is because of his identity. He is, in fact, the divine sovereign of the universe. Yes. Now, let's look at another verse here, Genesis 1, 27 and 28. It says that we are made in the image of God, so therefore we are little gods. Well, in fact, we're an exact duplication in kind, according to one word faith leader. And one person said, just as dogs have puppies and cats have kittens, so God has little gods. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. When I think about how God must think when he looks down on the earth and hears this creature say something like that. This idea, this prosperity gospel basically teaches that Adam was created in God's class. He had the same authority as God on the earth. The truth of the matter is, though, is that that's eisegesis. You're reading something into the text of Scripture that simply is not there. All Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, is is telling us is that man is created in God's image or his likeness in the sense that he is a finite reflection of God in his rational nature, his moral nature, and his dominion over creation. Now, it's kind of interesting, Pat, when you look at the Hebrew word for image, I'm sure that you're aware of this. You know, back in ancient times, whenever a king would conquer a territory, he would put an image of himself in that territory to represent his sovereignty over that territory. Well, man is said to be in in the image of God, and as the image of God, we represent God's authority. We don't represent our own authority as little gods. Rather, we as finite creatures represent God's authority over the world. And so, again, this is another example of the Word Faith Movement having a man-centered gospel as opposed to the God-centered gospel of which Scripture truly speaks. Right. That's a clear twisting of the Scripture there. You know, here's one that I run into quite a bit, just ran into it speaking out there in Southeast Asia, one of the poorest countries out there. We're talking about Genesis chapter 12 of the Abrahamic Covenant, where God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And the person said that that promise applies to all believers in Christ. Galatians 3.14, 
he was referring to. He says, so that in Christ the blessings of Abraham come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. So all the promises of Abraham of becoming a great nation, of having many offspring as the stars in the skies, to bless those who bless you and, and curse those who curse you, all belong to every believer in Jesus Christ. Well, you know, this is very close to what's called replacement theology. You know, this idea that the church replaces Israel and all the promises made to Israel are in fact fulfilled in a spiritual way in the church. The problem with that is that the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, as well as the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, were unconditional covenants made to Israel alone. Israel alone. And when you look at what's taken place throughout history, we find that covenant verified over and over again. Now, after the Abrahamic covenant was pronounced for Israel, it got repeated to his son and his son's son, and in fact, throughout the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, every book except one in the Old Testament alludes to the promises God made to Israel in the Abrahamic covenant. And then when you get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 through 11 talks about how God still has a future for Israel, uh, indicating that not just those covenants, but the new covenant as well would one day be fulfilled. And it's my personal belief, um, Pat, that those covenants will literally be fulfilled in what's called the future millennial kingdom, which takes place after Christ comes again. And the land promises of the Abrahamic covenant and the throne promises of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 will be literally fulfilled. Now, here's the thing. It is true that we are spiritual beneficiaries of Abraham. That is true. But that does not mean that the church replaces Israel, nor does it mean that all the stipulations of the Abrahamic covenant become literally fulfilled in the church. Rather, it simply means that just as Abraham was a man of faith who became justified by faith and was a man of God, so those of us of faith in New Testament times are also justified by faith, and therefore we are spiritually akin or spiritually related to Abraham. But again, it doesn't mean that we replace Israel or that we take over all those promises made in the Abrahamic covenant. That's simply you know, distorting the scriptures. Scripture tells us to rightly divide the word of truth. And if you're going to rightly divide the word of truth, you have to admit that that Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional covenant made to Israel alone. Yes, I think the second half of Galatians 3.14, you know, it says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Well, and even in the covenant itself, when you look back in Genesis, it talks about how all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through the, the seed of the woman. All the peoples of the earth, that includes the Gentiles. So from the very beginning, the Gentiles were intended to be you know, blessed as a result of Abraham. But again, that does not mean that the promises that were made specifically to Israel through Abraham are fulfilled in the church, because the church didn't even exist until Acts chapter 2. It is a distinct entity. And by the way, when you look at the book of Acts, we see that the church and Israel continue to be distinct with Israel being mentioned 20 specific times. Yeah, Israel mentioned 20 times and the church mentioned 19 times. So even in the book of Transitions, the book of Acts, we see that the church and Israel are still considered to be distinct from each other. Great expounding on that verse there. Well, here's another one we often hear. I think I've heard this since I first became a Christian and got exposed to this message. Isaiah 53, 5, which says, By his wounds we are healed. We are healed of every disease, of every sickness, through what Christ did on the cross. So by his wounds, 
we are healed. Well, that probably is the number one verse that's cited to say that healing is guaranteed in the atonement. And this idea of being guaranteed, this is one of those verses, Pat, that leads to guilt. You see, because there's a lot of Christians out there who are sick. And because they are sick, they hear verses like this and they say, well, wait a minute. It says that it's guaranteed in the atonement, and yet I've got cancer. It's guaranteed in the atonement, and yet I've got kidney problems. So what am I doing wrong? So this is one of those verses where we need to get it right. And I think the truth of the matter, when you look at the whole thing in context, it's clear that while ultimate physical healing is guaranteed in the atonement, and I'm talking about the resurrection of our bodies in the future, the healing of our bodies in the mortal state prior to death is not guaranteed in the atonement. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, would you please consider partnering with us? Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. Be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, please visit their website. That's hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Yeah.